Hello, you're listening to Wine Blast. And in this episode, the podcast lives up to its name because we are busy getting our minds blown by mm. the fine wines of Portugal. Mm. Yeah, so uh, everyone knows port, right? You know, it's a rare example of a wine that kind of headlines knowledge about a country rather than the other way round. But I'd hazard a guess that, you know, beyond ports and maybe Madeira, our knowledge and appreciation of the fine wines of Portugal can be pretty limited. Now, now um, you mean fine table wines, don't you? So not fortified. Exactly. Nor- know, normal wines. So still reds yeah. and whites from yes. all over Portugal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd agree. I mean, we, we've travelled round and tasted a fair bit from Portugal over the years, but still, I think this is something I'd happily admit not knowing a huge amount about. Mm, mm, uh, but you, mm. on the other hand, recently got a chance to get to know the wines and producers a bit better, didn't you? Yes, I did. Mm, and, you know, you. I was blown away. Um, so I thought we should share this and discuss it and explore this subject a little bit more because it's something to get excited about. For me, Portugal is the paradise in the world for the ones that love wine and food. I think Portugal is still a diamond, how do you say, unshaped, unpolished. It's almost possible to produce everything you want. You can really surprise yourself. Tomás Roquette of Quinta do Crasto there. Now we'll be hearing more from him in due course, as well as other top Portuguese wine talent, including Dirk and Daniel Nieport, Sandra Tavares, uh, Susana Esteban, uh, on why Portuguese wine deserves your time and attention. We've also got some beautiful wines lined up to taste, including the legend that is Barcavella. We do. We do. They're all here. They're in the, on the table in front of us and I'm having to Waiting. massively restrain myself. <laughs> just Hold yourself tucking back. Tucking in. I mean, I've got Stop. a little bit going, but yeah, we need to ooh, go zen. Be patient. <laughs> good. All good things come to those who wait. Anyway, so before we get started, we did just want to feature, feature a couple of your comments about our Santorini mini-series, didn't we? Mm. Um, you know, we've had some great feedback about this, so thank you so much. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, do now. It's ace. Absolutely. Um, he says modestly. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. We, we are fascinated and fun, out are out the we wind, not? window here. No, it's, it's the content <laughs> that makes it and the people. But anyway, you know, for example, Aaron got in touch to say, thank you for the fascinating and hugely enjoyable listening. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Inspired by your episodes on Santorini, we opened a bottle of 2018 Hatsidakis Skitali, which is £40 from the Wine Society. Not cheap, but excellent. Served with homemade gnocchi and pumpkin seed pesto, which was a seriously great match. Uh, and he very kindly sent us a photo of the food and wine. It looked absolutely delicious. Massive food and wine envy there, didn't we? Good work, Aaron. Yeah. And, and Cameron from Sydney wrote in to say, really enjoyed this. Would love to visit Santorini this year when I'm in Greece, but I can't make it. So mm. I'll have to drink as much Assyrtico as I can. <laughs> Also, how fascinating was it to hear from Javier Bardem on all things Santorini, i.e. Yanis? Uh, surely it wasn't just me. Uh, I need to unwrap pack this a bit because uh, so, so what, what Cameron's referring to is, yeah. you know, he thinks Yanis Paraskevopoulos from Gaia sounds like the actor Javier Bardem. And I think he's probably right. I love he? the thought. I love the thought there could be something in that. Mm, you know, absolutely. he does have quite a theatrical sort of melodic yeah, voice, yeah. doesn't he? Talking we- of voices, you're sounding a bit Barry White today, aren't you? <laughs> What's going on there? I wonder. Yeah, I she am. She says knowingly. I, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not mm. gonna go public on this. All I'm gonna say is that last night involved some singing <laughs> at, at tops and voices. And a I'm, dodgy I'm gonna club. leave that one there. Let, let, no, excuse me, dad dancing. Excuse me. 
just just singing. <laughs> anyway, so yes, do drink lots of Santorini Siesco to make up for it, Cameron. Um, on a similar but, but also sort of alarming note, we heard from Jonathan in New York who said, I was so inspired by your recent series on Santorini that I marched over to my local wine shop. I love the idea of him marching, marching over <laughs> to try and find some much lauded Santorini Asiatico, but was devastated to find none. Alas, I had to comfort myself by purchasing two bottles of rosé from the Canary Islands and another from Abruzzo. Uh, he added that responding to your question on the best wine destinations, I'd have to say my favourite wine destinations thus far are Porto, Reims or Epinay in Champagne. So Porto is relevant to it our is subject indeed. today, isn't it? And, and just nice to touch on what there. and yeah, just to touch on what Jonathan <laughs> says, um, I think tourism is really helping to spread the message about good Portuguese wine, which yeah, is great. It's very true. Um, very true. But yeah, I think that's Probably another programme that we need to do on the best wine destinations out there. We definitely do. do. Yeah, I think so. I know you'd push for Santorini. Uh, We Mm -hmm. we both would. But there are so many great wine places um, and not all are the obvious ones, which is the fun bit. Exactly, exactly. So let's do it. Let's do it. Um, Finally, um, Susie got in touch to say, uh, until the Greek government addresses the tourism situation, I feel Peter is correct with the doomsday scenario. I lived in the Peloponnese. The government has allowed so much building work everywhere. Santorini needs to be protected, as does most of Greece. It's not happening. Pretty areas mean ka-ching. Thank you for the podcast. Well, here's hoping the wine community can indeed fight back to protect those historic vineyards from the bulldozers, as we outlined in the programme. If anyone from the Greek government is listening, action is needed before Santorini's stunning legacy is lost forever. So thanks for that, Susie. Yeah, and actually... The other um, Susie. Another Susie. Another Susie. The very best. The very best. Uh, And actually, you know, just thinking about it, protecting and sort of cherishing a unique wine heritage is exactly what we'll be talking about in this programme, isn't it? You know? yeah. And the idea for this episode partly came from a friend giving us a bottle of wine, didn't it? It did. So Again, thank lovely. you, Tim. Uh, Tim yeah. was, was interested in our take on a bottle of Portuguese red he'd been enjoying. So we cracked it open and it was delicious. Mm. Um, we're not talking super expensive. I think it was 10, 10 yeah. or 12 pounds. Um, mm. But it does what Portugal so often does at this kind of price. It, it offers great value wines that are full of character without being too much, mm. really satisfying and gluggable, but also brilliant with food. Yeah, and I think there's a danger we take this kind of wine for granted. You know, you can get pretty cheap wines, good value wines from Portugal, red, white or rosé, that, that do this brilliantly, you know, way better than many other countries at these prices. And we're talking, I don't know, anywhere from five to 12 quid. Mm. Um, but we don't really go on about them, do we? Well, you know, I did small. once, if you remember. <laughs> you did, didn't you? That famous you did, occasion. You did, and, and I'm sure we've told this story before, haven't we? But let's touch it briefly, you know, when you recommended... It was uh, quarter six, wasn't it, yeah. on, on Saturday Kitchen? It did break the internet. It, it didn't break the internet. <laughs> break the internet. Even <laughs> I can't manage Kim that. Kim Kardashian you know, did it. Uh, that I am. It. Uh, I definitely it was, can't break well, okay, the internet. It crashed the biggest wide website <laughs> it in, did. in the it UK. Did. It, it did. sold out in minutes, went on to sell tens of thousands of bottles. The whole thing even got a name, the Porter Six Effect. Did it? Yeah, do you want to know that? Okay. I didn't know that. It's got a name. And let's it's face it, this is not about me. It's about the wine. The wine was so no, good. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, I think it, it sort of reinforces the point, doesn't it, that that's what these wines from Portugal can do at that level. But, you know, I'm not sure they get the credit that they deserve. We often talk about sort of Australian wine when, you know, not that mm. it's bad, but Portugal, I think, definitely deserves to be in with a shout. It doesn't get that shout radar. very often. You know, and then I get the chance to go to Portugal for an event and, and a tasting focused exclusively on the very top end of Portuguese wine. And I see a similar thing, you know, amazing things 
but which have somehow passed me by to date. And, yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, it, I, uh, it, it's not like we don't know the place or its wines, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But maybe it's just much more complex and interesting and multifaceted than we realise. You know, it, it keeps surprising us, I think that, it? I think absolutely. I think that's the thing. Um, and I think that's what we sort of want to get into a bit here. So, you know, when I talk to Dirk Nieport, uh, probably one of Portugal's uh, finest, most thoughtful winemakers, he compared Portugal to South Africa, uh, in the sense that it was a very closed country that suddenly opened up to the world in the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, Portugal was um, quite closed or, or isolated politically and economically for, for much of the 20th century, yeah, and, wasn't and, it? and we forget that. We forget that. And, and wine suffered as a result. You know, for much of the 20th century, Portugal was quite poor and underdeveloped. The cooperative movement was promoted. Uh, and in, in Dirk Nieport's words, you know, this banalised Portuguese wine. It just made it kind of lowest common denominator. And... But then when Portugal joined the EU in, in, I think it was 1986, things started to open up. You know, investment came in. Tourists, as you've said, came in greater numbers. And I think that's really helping. Winemakers also travelled and exchanged knowledge, which is absolutely key to a healthy wine sector. You know, And the wine sector as a whole started to sort of modernise. Mm, but, um, but that's it, on the flip side, that's not always an entirely positive thing, is it? Um, or rather... <laughs> modernizing wine in the 1990s wasn't always great yeah, um, yeah. because it was it was a time of parker robert parker of roland of of standardization of wine of squeaky clean winemaking mm, exactly. um which you could argue was in part driven by the new world or the australian school of wine at the time if you if you want to call it that yeah and i think i think um, and, and dirk made this point actually you know he said portugal went from rustic but authentic wines to jumping into a very modern era dominated by winemakers and in his words who knew everything better you know mm. that very sort of technocratic approach and and the wines became full of wines became what he described as very dull and technological but you know Dirk says now the country is getting beyond that and focusing more on the vineyard and the terroir than the winemaking which is obviously good um and he also sees the same thing happening in, in South Africa which is absolutely true as well so I think you know you can draw that comparison you could also draw a comparison with Chile interestingly in the same way anyway let's not digress too much <laughs> the question really is you know what happens now yeah. which direction is Portugal going to go in yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's at a bit of a crossroads in that sense yeah I know and sometimes you have to go too far to come back again haven't you really mm. but but the bigger point here surely is that if you if you take the take 1990 as a rough timeline for Portugal's mm. new era starting that's not actually that much time in the grand scheme of things mm. yeah, you know yeah. to modernize mm. yeah. to change to evolve from quite a, a closed old-fashioned system to something mm. more in line with what people want and expect mm. but without losing a sense of identity at the same time yeah that's, that's a really really good point and and maybe that's partly why you know we're still getting to know the real portugal it, it's real potential for fine wine um, but there are also advantages to blooming late, I suppose, which we'll touch on in a bit as well. Um, anyway, before we bring in our first guest, can I just set the scene for my recent visit and explain the other reason we're doing this episode? Please in do. That sense. Um, okay. because, because you told me this was hard work, <laughs> nose to the grindstone, all work and no play kind of thing. <laughs> Mm. Um, yeah, th Not there may sure. have been, I think, a moment in the passport queue when that was true. Uh, beyond that, 
you know, I think it was when the Maserati came to pick me up. I knew it wasn't going to be your kind of average wine event. Clearly um, not, no. <laughs> no, so this is definitely a high-end wine event. It was called Vigno da Casa uh, in the city of Porto, uh, organised by the Publico News Organisation. You know, the idea being a cool house party filled with 20 of Portugal's very best wine producers showing off their top wines, uh, live music, cooking, masterclasses, uh, which is what I was there for, a masterclass, hosting a tasting of a very special top-end uh, Portuguese red wines. And so while you were there working, uh, you did manage to grab some of these Portuguese wine celebs uh, to chat and share their views with us. Exactly. This, yeah, so I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't actually sit still for very, very long. I, you know, I just got so overexcited, basically, tasting these wines, meeting these people. I thought, we have to make a podcast out of this. So you know, I grabbed mics and, and tried to make stuff work. Um, I, I do also need to add that this was about the worst environment to record in you can imagine. You know, cavernous, echoey stone. I mean, very cool for a party, nightmare for recording. <laughs> Noisy people everywhere, of course, having fun. Music blaring, nightmare for sound. So I did what I could. Didn't you um, take refuge on the roof in the end? I mean, not not to throw yourself off, but uh, <laughs> just it didn't quite try and find that. a quiet it wasn't that place. Bad. It wasn't that bad. Uh, it was a roof terrace. Just to clarify, this wasn't illegal roof roaming. It was, you know, it was it was a, a roof terrace. But you know, then we had to contend with the wind, uh, and and also for one set of interviews, it was so sunny. I couldn't see my screen, so I didn't realise the right mic wasn't working. But anyway, enough about my technical issues. I think that uh, is enough about I, I your just, technical issues, I just issues, mentioned this to set the scene for the sound, I guess, which mm. definitely has stuff going on in the background. It's not perfect. I think we just all need to get in the kind of rooftop party vibe. Then it's fine. Yeah, yeah. And, and these, frankly, on a practical note, these interviews are not long, are they? No. Uh, but, but first up, we've got Tomás Roquette from Quinta de Crasto, a family-owned wine estate in the Douro Valley, which has a long history. And they started making table wines in the mid-1990s. Yeah, and they've got some pretty impressive table wines too, including the single vineyards Maria Teresa and Vigna da Ponte. Uh, I was actually showing their Honore 2015 Magnum at my masterclass. It's a, it's a one-off blend of those two celebrated vineyards uh, and it's to, to to mark the estate's 400th anniversary and it's priced at a cool 1,000 euros for the magnum. Uh, it's also delicious. It's it's sort of floral but rugged, you know, polished and, and characterful. Uh, so I asked Tomás, what's exciting about Portugal and its wines right now? For me, Portugal is the paradise in the world for the ones that love wine and food. And because we are a small country, but we are the biggest coast facing the Atlantic Ocean, we are the country with more sun hours in Europe, and we have it's very easy to go around. But in a small country, you can find easily more than 20 different DOC regions, wine regions, with so many different grape varieties. So, uh, and with the, this new winemaking and viticulture generation, there was definitely a big uh, transformation in the country. And associated to each region, you have a beautiful gastronomy. So for the ones that loves wine and food, this is the paradise. You said this is the country with some of the most sunlight hours in Europe. Sometimes that can make for quite jammy, rich wines, which don't go with food very well, and yet, Portuguese wines seem to go with food really well. So can you explain to me how that works? Well, first of all, uh, yes. I mean, if you, if I have to, to put in a, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a graphic, if we are more for uh, light wines and more, you know, uh, 
uh, fresh wines or a little bit more structured and jammy. Maybe we are now, before maybe we were a little bit more for the right, for my jammy and more extract wines. I think now we are getting a little bit more balanced. So it is possible to produce very balanced wines. It's, it's, it's almost possible to produce everything you want as soon as you plant or you get the grapes from the right place with the right, with the right sun exposure, with the right altitude, with the right soil, with the right grape variety, okay? And then, plus a good winemaking team, you can really surprise yourself. I think Portugal is still a diamond, uh, uh, and, how do you say, unshaped. Uncut, uncut. Unpolished. Unpolished, definitely, you know? So it's a lot, because, look, I'll give you an example. Uh, we have this partnership with Chateau Lanchebache, where we have the wine together, the Roque de Cas. Uh, we are, uh, we are uh, 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 working together with a family that is producing red wines for more than 200 years. We started 30 years ago, or 35 years ago, so it's, we know, everybody knows that it's a lot to learn, a lot to, a lot to be discovered, because Douro is the biggest mountain viticulture in the world, so it's, it's a big puzzle. And you're getting year after year surprise where, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that that variety at this altitude facing north could produce this beautiful wine. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a lot to be discovered. So a country, it's easy to get around with loads of different wine styles, mm. loads of different regions and grape varieties. And more importantly, a country whose wine scene is still young if you look mm. beyond port. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Cresto has been making port for hundreds of years. Uh, the estate dates back to 1615, I think, you know, but table wine only since the mid-90s, 1994, I think. So, yeah, they're all still exploring, you know, still polishing that diamond to to, to, to follow up that, that metaphor. You know, and the younger generations coming through are kind of turbocharging that trend as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Still young is a really important point here. Now, Tomás mentioned grape varieties, and this is a big thing in Portugal. Mm-hmm. One of the key things about Portuguese wine are these unique grape varieties, mm-hmm. many of them indigenous, so not really found elsewhere. Yeah. Lots of them utterly unpronounceable. Um, I'm not even going to try. Um, but they often make for wines that are really characterful and just a bit yeah, different, yeah, yeah. don't absolutely, they? Absolutely. That's often their point of difference. That these, these characters are down to these amazing grape varieties. It, it was a point that um, Luis Pato made, one of, you know, a great, great winemaker. Portugal needs to focus on what makes it different and special. And, and that's largely the grape varieties. Not many other people have them. Um, you know, we probably don't have time to get into the individual grape varieties too much here. Maybe that's for another one <laughs> And we'll make you pronounce all of them. Um, but I did ask every winemaker what their favourite Portuguese grape was, just to give you an idea. And I got a different answer every time. That's so that gives you a sense. That sort of, of says it all, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> and I guess that, that's both good and bad because it's easy to sell big international, the big international grape varieties because people recognise them. They're grown everywhere. And it's hard to sell things people don't know. But at the same time, it's a real point of difference. Yeah, and this is something that really interests me. Um, and one particularly intriguing aspect of this is the field blends. You know, these vineyards where all kinds of different grape varieties are planted together in the same vineyard. You know, historically, this was done to maximise production. Portugal is affected by weather coming in off its Atlantic coast, so vintage variation is a big deal here. You know, in some years some varieties might not work at all. So you planted others as an insurance policy. You know, this is often done for port production. So it's common to find field blends, for example, in the Douro. And you do find um, this elsewhere in the, the wine world as well, in older vineyards like, um, I don't know, 
Roussillon or, mm, or Chile or yeah. California or, or Santorini. Yeah, too. Exactly. absolutely. But it's particularly prevalent in Portugal and, and the Douro, uh, which obviously is the heart of port production. Um, so, for example, with Crashdoz Honore wine, I asked what varieties were in it, you know, because I was presenting this wine at the masterclass. And effectively, I just got laughed at. <laughs> Uh, they said in one vineyard they'd found 54 different genotypes uh, to date. <laughs> you know, so that's different grape And in the other one, they hadn't even started the identification process. So, you know, we're talking about a real mix of stuff in, in these vineyards. Well, yeah, but I guess the question is then what does it mean for the wines? Exactly. So I put this question to Susana Esteban, uh, another of Portugal's top winemaking talent, even though she's originally from Galicia in Spain, actually, uh, which you might be able to tell from her, her, her accent, her lovely accent. Uh, now, she'd made a point of highlighting the importance of field blends in the context of what makes Portugal exciting. So I asked her how on earth you go about working with a field blend of all kinds of different grape varieties. Well, I think it's a question of, of practice because it's, it's a little bit confused for, for people that usually work only with a grape. But to me, for the beginning, I, I always uh, work with uh, field blends in the Doro Valley. So um, you, it's no uh, an analytic, it's no very scientific because you have different grapes in different uh, maturation stations. So, so, so it's like um, a feeling. You must to know very well the vineyard you must spend a lot of time in the vineyard so this gives a lot of complexity to the wines because you have uh, overripe grapes but also some green uh, grapes but in the middle you have uh, in the perfect uh, in the perfect maduration and this is uh, the complexity of this of these wines are different from the another's uh, wines because each grapes gives something different to, to the wine. So it's almost winemaking by intuition. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a feeling and, and, and stay, know very, very well the vineyard and, and, and know where is all the... And you have different years and this is also very interesting because in all vineyard, vineyard with a field blend, uh, the different uh, years are, are... You have less different in, 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 into the... The different years. I think first they are unique because you, uh, now you you go to any <laughs> country in the world. You have Cabernet, you have a Shiraz, you have a, it's always the same. Here you have many many grapes uh, that so are unique. The 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 wines in Portugal. So her point is the wine you make from a field blend is unique but you have to take the time to get to know the vineyard and then almost make the wine by intuition and experience. Yeah, and that's quite cool, isn't it? I mean, you know, this is a, a unique historic legacy in Portuguese wine. And if it can be preserved by, you know, forward-thinking winemakers making great wines like Susanna, then that's a win-win. I was intrigued by her saying that vintage variation is less in a field blend too. Now, hold that thought, because uh, I also spoke to Sandra Tavares about field blends, um, and she had something intriguing to say. To recap so far, though, Portugal tends to fly under the radar with its fine wines, but like an uncut diamond, there are treasures to be found here. Now, uh, Sandra Tavares is another brilliant winemaker from Wine and Soul, uh, among other places, but... I showed her Quinta da Manuela Vinhas Velhas 2012 at the Masterclass, and it was another wine from the Douro. It's, it's a sort of 
piercing and spicy and just so full of energy and lift. Just a delicious wine. It's, it's a Doro field blend, as we've been discussing, with 32 different varieties. <laughs> just, just think about that for a second. Anyway, she said something fascinating about field blends. Now, I do apologise for the sound here. This was when the mics and the wind started playing up a bit. But it's a short clip, uh, and I hope you can get the gist. Portugal is really known by the blends, so mm. we are we love to blend in order to get complexity and richness. Uh, and I think the extreme uh, it's the field blends because the field blends I think really give the total identity of a plot a terroir. Mm. That must be so difficult to manage, you know, isn't it? <laughs> and then and then harvest to make a good wine from. No, it's uh, that's the interesting thing. It's uh, how nature works and. Um, with the field blend, the grapes they really adapt to each other, mm. and uh, and they create a much more complex wine. So some and it's so interesting, especially now the, or during flowering season, we can see and we can really understand what what happens uh, on on the cycle. It's the flowering, even the, the cycles in different varieties. Sometimes. They, they would flower later or earlier, but as soon as they are planted together, they tend to flower at the same time. Because if they don't, they won't be pollinized. And, um, and it's really important for them to flower at the same time in order to, 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 to produce, produce seeds. Mm. That's mm. the goal of a plant, yeah. to produce the yeah. seeds. So it's really interesting to see. So some varieties will have a longer period, longer ripe uh, cycle, others shorter. And that's the, the amazing and the, because you get much more complexity with different layers. Mm. So some varieties will give the freshness and higher acidity, and others will give more the, the more fruit, and more uh, others will give the structure and the, the, the density. So, and and as winemakers, what we have to do is really to understand the vineyards. It's not we don't have to manipulate anything in the winery. It's really so. Do you think this this sort of these blends and these field blends is that a real strength, a, a USP of Portuguese wine? I think so. Yeah. Because it's, yes, yeah. The DNA of the vineyard is there. So the vines synchronize flowering in a field blend to ensure good pollination. Mm. I mean, that, that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, she makes the point about winemakers needing to understand the vineyard, but it can make for unique wines. Absolutely. And I think this is when we start to appreciate one of the key things about Portuguese wines. And this might sound a bit odd. I'm not sure how I'm going to say this, but these top Portuguese wines, they're, they're, they're not obvious. You kind of need to go with the flow to a certain extent. There's a sort of magic to it that's not always easy to explain or, or understand. You've just got to dive in. So so take Dirk Nieports. You know, as I've said, one of the most brilliant Portuguese winemakers, even though he's actually of Dutch extraction originally. Now, he's always taking the mick out of himself for doing too many things. He reckons uh, he makes more than 85 wines. Uh, and he does sort of crazy experiment after crazy experiment intermixed with crazy collaborations all around the world. Yeah, I mean, what's, um, what's he done? He's done stuff in Sherry, hasn't he? German Riesling, yeah, what else? Yes, absolutely. I think he's done stuff in Austria and South Africa as well. I don't know, but, you know, to be honest, you lose track. You know, there are so many cool, crazy things that he's doing. But, you know, he says that's his way of learning, you know, by doing stuff. Sometimes silly things, making mistakes, but always learning, pushing boundaries. 
He does make um, more classic traditional wines too. Yeah, though, of, doesn't co- he? of course he does. You know, maybe we talk about them a bit less, but he, I think port and daughter wines, and also in Bayrada and, and Dao regions. But in terms of more groundbreaking wines, you know, at this event I tried his Kosh 2020. You know, it's a white old vine Douro field blend, but with shades of sort of Chassagne Morache. Uh, it's bravura winemaking, you know, and viticulture. Then there's his ADN Lureiro Docile 2020. It's like a sort of German or Austrian Riesling off dry. Uh, which is just slightly bad for for that part of the world in in, in the sort of menial region, and and then you know when I interviewed Daniel Neport, Dirk's son and sixth generation winemaker, he brought along a blind red wine for me to taste, and this is what happened. Now you've brought a glass of wine with you. Yes. Shall we try it? Oh, yes. Of course, that would be. So a pleasure. Thank you. So this is one of your wines, I, I assume. This is a beautiful ruby color. It's not super deep. It's actually relatively pale. Oh my word, that's wonderful aroma. <laughs> that's really kind of herbal and leafy, and it's just it's just it's just a wonderful perfume. Putting it in a frame of reference, you're sort of in that Pinot Noir sort of Nebbiolo type territory, aren't you? It's just beautiful. Mm. Oh, gorgeous, lovely layered red fruit flavors herbal complexity the tannins are very fine but quite firm but they're mouth-watering they make you want to have some food have some sort of charcuterie with that and just so long and persistent and complex I mean it's a it's a wine with real elegance it's got intensity but it's really elegant and perfume so right you're gonna have to tell us what what that is actually uh really nice so so for all the listeners uh, he di- he didn't know what is that huh? at all <laughs> and uh, it's actually a bit of a, a an unusual wine for us i would say because normally we we really uh, into the the, the portuguese uh, field blend and we really like to yeah kind of use the grapes we have here because we have many and uh, that's very good but this is a, a little different uh, experiment okay because uh, as you might uh, well you know and, and, and some people know we make uh, way too many wines <laughs> uh, but that's our way to get to learn and this is uh, a pinot what we do in uh, in dodo <laughs> now, this is pinot yeah so it's, it's in the dodo really, yeah it's really not the region where you should plant uh, <laughs> pinot uh, but as my father he really he really loves uh, pinot and uh, actually, I have to say, the older the vineyard gets, uh, then stable, because it's a, it's a really complicated grape in Doro. Doro is just too hot, so it's always the first or one of the first we pick. It's uh, in the first or uh, second week of August. And uh, it's really challenging because you, you go and uh, check out the vineyard to make a plan when to pick. And uh, it seems all green. And then you go two days or three days after, and it's perfect. And uh, if you just miss it and you have like uh, two days more, then it's just overripe. So it's it's quite challenging. And this is 2020. And uh, yeah, so we like the the herbiness, you know, and it comes because we like to work with stems. So that's where also some of the tannins come. And uh, we, we kind of like that uh, to give it a bit more freshness and grip. And, uh, and then the end, it's really an idea to make an elegant wine from such a rough and hot region like Douro. Huh? Wow, so this was a Pinot Noir from the Douro, which you'd think would be the last place you'd plant Pinot. 
and yeah, it was yeah, yeah. really good. You really rated it? I really did. I really did. Uh, and I had to taste it again just to be sure it was the real deal. And it really was, you know. And the uh, Douro, I mean, we haven't explained, but the Douro Valley, you know, this this incredibly hot, steep-sided, beautiful river valley that goes from the Portuguese west coast up to, to the Spanish border. You know, it's generally pretty hot and torrid. Mm. Um, it is very hot. What's the famous thing? It's a couple of months of winter and then nine months of hell is the way that, you know. So this is a hot place. Yeah. And yet you can make a wine like this, which is so poised and balletic and elegant. It's unbelievable. Mm. I think it just goes to show that Portugal is capable of making fine wines that defy expectations. And that's why I love the Newport wines, you know. And, I, you know, we've got some here to taste, haven't we, as well? Mm. You know, Daniel said, Portugal is this small little place people don't really know but it's got big potential combining old knowledge with new ideas mm, i think that that combination of old and new does seem to be at the heart of portugal's identity yeah absolutely it? totally totally and, I, and this was actually something that dirk his dad dirk Newport, said too that the tradition is key there you know they haven't really gone down the international grape variety route and simplifying things in that process as for why and because we were backward and we didn't have money, we probably didn't change so fast. And so we got stuck to the old wines and our own varieties. And this is good news uh, today. And while selling a Rabo d'Ovelha variety was impossible, selling a field blend, the people looked at me and said, what the fuck is that? Um, now it's, it's exotic. Uh, it's positive. And people say, oh, it's not Chardonnay. Oh. I want to try that. I want to see it. I want to understand it. Tell me about it. So are we going to see more and more experimentation? Is that part of the way that Portugal is going to develop and needs to develop? Uh, what I'm seeing is uh, the technical mass wines are getting a lot cleaner and a lot better, which is a good thing, but not necessarily in copying the new worlds. Uh, so even the cheaper wines are have a bit of personality but I think what, what really interests our discussion today is great producers really identifying more clearly where are they and, and trying to understand the situation, the vineyards, the varieties, the soils, the climate conditions and, and making small batches of interesting daring wines and, and changing the world in a positive way. Changing the world through daring wines. Now, there's a strap line, if ever there was one. Yeah, there are lots of examples uh, in Portugal. You know, I chatted with Luis Pato at this event too. You know, another of, as I said, Portugal's most famous winemakers, another restless innovator. You know, I think I called him the Salvador Dali of Portuguese wine to his face. He did laugh. Uh, anyway, you know, and he was talking to me about his experiments with, for example, hyperoxygenation for his fizz and using ozone instead of copper in the vineyards and planting without rootstocks. You know, all this kind of stuff. You know, we actually tried uh, uh, um, a wine uh, from vines planted on their own roots uh, in the masterclass, a Quinta do Ribeirinho Pefranco, 2005 from Bayrada, which is made from the Baga grape variety. It's just incredibly pure and fine and elegant. It's one of the best wines in that region, if not in Portugal. Mm. And you said he was keen to promote Portugal on the basis of its unique grape varieties. Yeah, exactly. That's what you said. It's, it's old planting, it's field blends, it's really diverse regions from Minho, the land of fresh, crisp, white, Vino Verde in, in the northwest, down to the sort of sunny, bold reds of uh, Alentejo and, and the Algarve, you know, and, it, and it's people too, you know, including the new generation like Daniel Newport. All of these things make, make it so special. They do. And on that note, I reckon we should get tasting. Oh, um, and yes. we have 
an amazing lineup. I resisted this. I think we've been talking too much. Haven't we? <laughs> we really do have an amazing lineup here. Uh, you know, so just to be clear, we're focusing on Portuguese fine wine here. You, you started already. I have already. Right. Sorry, okay. sorry. I've waited um. a long time. <laughs> yeah. I've listened and anyway, I've waited. Anyway, this, this is you just heard the word fine wine and you just tucked in. And you, <laughs> so this is the top end of things. It's not. These wines aren't cheap, basically. But, you know, I spoke with Raymond Reynolds, who's a leading importer of Portuguese wines in the UK. And he said that selling expensive Portuguese wine is a challenge. But uh, to quote him, above £15 is where the real Portugal begins to shine and where you get viticultural treasures and excitement from talented producers. Okay, well, uh, I think he's right because uh, we've got a few gems here and we're going to whiz through them, but we'll Mm. put more details on our show notes and Mm. website. So starting with the whites, um, I absolutely love this wine I've got in my glass, which Mm. is the Vinhas Velas Branco 2022 by Lewis Pato. That is a blend of, get this, Bical, Mm -hmm. Cecial and Cecialino. Is that right? Have I pronounced I, that correctly? I have no idea. We, I, I, can I just apologise generally for our Portuguese pronunciation? It's not very <laughs> it's good. It's horrendous. We just, can't, we just sort of say anyway, it. Anyway, something like that. <laughs> what you said. Um, and it's from the Bairada region. Mm. It's £20. Uh, it's got a lovely orangey mm. character. It's lively and energetic. And genuinely, yeah. it just makes me happy. Yeah, it's I'm every time I pick this up. It is cool. It is cool. And, you know, if it makes mm. you happy, it's a good sign. I mean, I mm. wasn't quite so keen. I have to be honest. You know, what can you I, not I, like about that? It's, well, just, it's no, there's oh. lots to it. I think I, I preferred his Vigna Formal, which is also mm. here, another white from Bayrada. It's just a bit more elegant and restrained, and I, I slightly preferred that. I think we're style. going to disagree on quite a few of these, aren't we? Uh, in, yeah. in the best possible way. No, no, and, and actually, this is important. You, you know, I, I, and we can touch on what this says about the wines in due course. It's mm. important that we don't agree about mm. all these wines. Um, on that very theme, uh, I've got a wine here. Um, this is this is uh, one I loved and you didn't. Um, this was the the Susana Esteban Procura Branco 2020. So we talked, we heard from Susana. Uh, this is a field blend, a white field blend from the Sao Mamede Hills in Alentejo. It's really characterful, not at all obvious. It's, it's full of sort of baked cream and bruised red apple aromas. It's got a sort of mouth coating style in the mouth, doesn't it? It's sort of like a cross of Southern Rome white and, and old champagne that's gone flat. You know, it's, it's, it's gutsy. <laughs> I'm not it's, it's, selling it. it's full of personality. No. I love it. I mean, yeah. because it's uncompromising, and yeah. it's different. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to be honest and say for me, you know, um, what the first wine had was the, the zest. This is, this is totally opposite, which is yeah. fine. It's horses for courses, but this is for me just a bit too oily and broad. Mm. Um, well, yeah, it's from the antigua. You know, it reminds sun here. I know it's well, altitude, it, it, but you get it you almost know, reminded character. me bizarrely of Fino Sherry, which doesn't mm. sound quite right because that's not broad and oily. But that's but, um, partly why I quite but there like was, it. Yeah, there's something about it. There's a flavour in there that's similar. Yeah. Um, but another interesting one was the Niport Redoma. Do you say yeah. Redoma Branco? Uh, Redoma, Redoma Branco yeah. 2021. No, now, this is an intriguing yeah. wine because mm. initially it, it starts quite reserved. Mm. But then over time in, in bottle, you know, a lovely and then glass, a lovely kind of struck match um, or as you called it in one of our episodes, snap, crackle and pop. Yeah. Um, that nutty, flinty character started to emerge and it is really attractive. Mm. Um my only thing to say here would be, I wonder if the early harvest, um, which I assume is what happened given it's only got 11.5% alcohol, mm. for me it just means it's a little tiny bit lacking concentration on the palate. Well, I quite like that though. You know, it means it's I a lighter style. I do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know. It sort of means you can drink more. I know it what you does, mean. You almost but, you want know, a bit more from it. The nose makes yeah. me think I'm going to get a bit more. Yes, I agree. I, um, but there's nothing do, wrong I with a light wine. It's but, you very know. drinkable. Yeah. 
It I, is and very you do get very a refreshing. lovely texture and finesse on the yeah. palette. I thought this was beautiful in that sense. It's seamless. You know, mm. maybe not the most sexy, but a really grown up, proper, lovely white wine. Anyway, moving on into the reds. Uh, we disagreed a bit here too, it's fair to say, but there were a couple of exceptions, one of which, and I'm going to start, start on, on the consensus, <laughs> one of which on was one. the Meandro do Valle Miao uh, 2020 uh, from the Doro. Utterly captivating aromas in this wine, aren't they? You just mm. you don't even you don't even have to smell it or smell it. It just smell leaks it? out of the glass. Did you say smell? Smell. Smell it. Well, is that- <laughs> we should all smell. Do you not do not smell well, your why wine? Why say smell and smell when you could just say smell? <laughs> One must always smell the wine. Uh, yeah, it's it's sort of it's just it, it's it's floral and peppery mm. and it really piercing lovely, aromas it? of blackberries and stuff. You know? yeah. And then on the palate, it's spicy and energetic, and it's you know it's twenty five quid, so it's yeah. not crazy. Which in the context, I mean, yeah. we should say this. Yeah. You know, twenty five quid is not cheap, but. You know, some yeah, of these wines are really wine pretty Duro. expensive. Lovely, really exactly. Nice. It's a, you know, a classic Douro blend of mm. uh, mainly Tariga Nacional, so mm. hence that floral peppery character and yeah. Tariga Franca, uh, plus a few others. Mm. Um, do love some good Tariga Nacional. Yeah, no, this um, one it is a great worth highlighting. Yeah, Nearly went extinct, yeah. Yeah. Um, but has been made a comeback in Dao mm. and Douro, and it's got this floral. It's, like, it's a bit like Syrah sometimes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to me, this is the, the epitome of good red Duro table wine, mm. um, but uh, but moving on, we come on to something that we definitely didn't agree <laughs> yeah, on. Is that one. fair? All right, let me just move the you bottle. You tried very over hard. Here. I'm going to move it slightly my way a bit more. Not as necessary. <laughs> should, uh, I think I think I think one of the things I found fascinating at this tasting in in Porto was getting to know Alicante Boucher from the Alentejo. Now. Alicante Boucher, this is a, this is a historic speciality. Alicante Boucher is not very highly thought of as a grape variety in wine generally. It's a Tanturier grape, so a rare grape whose flesh is red as well as the skin. Usually in a red grape, the, the flesh is, is not red. It's just the skin. Um, often this wine, this grape is used to add colour in a blend. So it's thought of as, you know, it not particularly just use it as, as a blending component. But in the Alentejo, in sort of warm, dry centre south of Portugal, it was apparently introduced by the Reynolds family in the late 19th century, and it's just sort of taken to the place. And now you find old vines giving the most amazing wines from this great variety. But is it fair to say it's an acquired taste? Yeah, you don't look convinced. Um, it's quite punchy, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. This is, these, are wines, these are not wines for the faint-hearted. You know, classic Alentejo Alicante Boucher, from what I've experienced, is a bit rustic. You know, it's often minty blackberry and really dense tannin, often with quite a leathery or dried meat character, which, which I have to say I love. You know, it's hearty. And the best ones are really, really special. Um, so I mentioned the Reynolds family. There's lots of offshoots of the Reynolds family. I was originally a British merchant family who, who, who were out there and sort of settled. Um, I mean, and, and Raymond Reynolds is part of that. Um, you know, they're doing really good things with this. Uh, so Julio Bastos and Julian Reynolds. Plus I had a 1978 Tapado de Chavez uh, at, the, at the tasting, which features Alicante Boucher, which, is, which was glorious. But the one we got here is the, 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 the bottle I've been edging to myself, and I've got a full glass of here, is the Mouchao Tonnel 3 to 4, uh, 2013. This is an epic wine. It's meaty. It's leathery. It's sort of dry, dark fruit, cedar, mint. You know, it's very firm on the on the palate, but it's also very fine and, and fresh. I think this will age forever. We tried the 2001 in my masterclass, but you know, it's kind of for me. It's what if it's what you get if you mash up in one glass 
some really cool Northern Rhone, a bit of claret, a bit of Madeira, a bit of cow, a bit of Chianti. I could go on. A packet of tunes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm being really facetious. There is a bit but, of mintiness um, in there, I, but I it's did not... find it a, a bit much. Um, yeah. But, you know. It is full on. It's yeah. full on. Yeah. And, and, and it is ageing nicely it's you know it's complex it's just mm. personally not my favorite um mm. and i'd also raise a point at this stage you know this wine is an alentejo legend is it not it um, is. but it is 190 odd quid a bottle isn't yeah. it yeah, yeah. Uh, and we've seen that with some other wines too for example the Neport is 50 pounds your magnum in your masterclass as we've said was a thousand euros mm. and we're going to come on to another expensive wine too in a moment mm. um you know i just wonder if the if the top level of portuguese wine exists in a slightly parallel universe when it comes to pricing. Mm. Um, mm. Perhaps because locally people will pay a lot of money. Um, mm. But I'm just not sure how easy that then becomes in international markets for people to to buy into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. I think there's also often an element of sort of rusticity or age in the style too, which I think can be lovely, but isn't for everyone. It kind of polarises, doesn't it? Uh, equally, you know, these are some truly great wines, highly individual made with great care, you know, preserving historic legacies. They deserve to be in fine wine territory. So we're arguing over sort of small differences, I think. And when we say to fine wine, you know, we were sent a very, very oh. special bottle to taste, weren't we? We were. Which we do agree on. We have it here. We totally uh, agree wow. on. Wow, it's right here. We are in the presence of legend. As you said, this is Barca Velha 2011. Um Possibly the most famous Portuguese table wine. I think so, yeah. Um, created in 1952. Um, interestingly, just a year after Penfold's Grange, another iconic blended red was created by Max Schubert in Australia. Um, and both of those countries were, you know, fortified wine was the prevalent thing at the time. At the time, Which yeah. is an interesting thought. Anyway, mm. you know, so this was the time of port, really. So an ambitious table wine made in sort of Heath Robinson fashion in the isolated reaches of the Douro was quite revolutionary. Um, it's a wine designed to age forever and showcase the very best of the Dordo, so a blend of power and refinement. And it's only made in certain years. Uh, I think since 1952, it's only been declared 20 times. So wow. what, out of a possible 70? Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, inter so interesting the, the coincidence with Grange's first vintage. Mm. Um, yeah, anyway, so th this this is a, a, a cool... £600 a bottle, isn't it? I think Grange yep. is around the same price. Yeah. Uh, and there are similarities in concept, as you say, if not style. Mm. Um, you could call it the Petrus of Portugal mm. if you wanted mm. another strap line. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm interested in the fact that it's really not declared every year by any means. Yeah. So I chatted with winemaker Luis, uh, Luis Sotomayor at this event. You know, he is notoriously stringent when it comes to declaring Barcavelia. And, and you know, he says a lot of that is down to the fact he has to be utterly convinced of the wine's ageing potential. So, for example, 2007 was an amazing vintage in the Douro. Everyone expected Barcavelia to be declared, um, but he said no. And it, uh, he, he, he sort of joked to me that the Sogarap chairman, a company who owns uh, Bacavelia, joked with him that uh, he just lost the company 10 million euros with that decision, that one word. That but, one you know, word, uh, no. But no, I, I think it was all in good, good humour. But, you know, then he did declare the 2008 vintage, which no one was expecting, but which in his, his view was a sort of less obvious vintage, um, but more discreet and capable of more graceful and better ageing. And that gives you a sense of what this wine is all about. So what's, what's the process then? What happens if he 
doesn't decide to declare it. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually. So they, they also make a wine called Reserva Especial. Uh, we tried the 1992 and 1989 Reserva Especial or Reserva at the, at the event, which were both amazing. But, you know, this is what I find interesting. That decision-making process can take, you know, between seven and ten years before he makes a final call on it. So, you know, this really isn't a lightweight project. It's serious and it's, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And, you know, Luis feels the pressure. He says there's huge amounts resting on making the right decision. Um, on which note, we should taste this bottle and find out properly, come on. should we not? I thought you'd never ask. Uh, let's cut to the chase. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what it is, is incredibly dark, oh. first of all. Mm. It's it's very complex aromatically. You know, my initial reaction when I first stuck my nose in the glass is that there are hints of good Bordeaux here. Mm. You know, it's cedar and some mm. dried fruit, some bell pepper a bit of creaminess too, um, yeah. but it's it, it's just multi-layered, isn't it? There's just it? so much going on, isn't there? You're, yeah, it's a fine one. You also get the. I agree. There's some sort of Bordeaux-esque. I mean, they're not exclusive to Bordeaux. Those aromas are they? So maybe it's unfair, but you know, there's definitely that. But that's just a classic. There is an element um, of that, but there's comparison. also the sort of florality and the sort of pepper of the Dodo as well, isn't there? There's a slight, slight sort of extravagance there, a sort of wild mint note. All of yeah. all of those all, I associate all with, that with you the Dodo. Smell, and mm. then in your mouth, it's just incredibly yeah. smooth. Yeah. It's got very fine chalky tannin. I mean, yes, the alcohol is fourteen point five percent, but. And this is what matters. It's wonderfully fresh still and compelling mm. and balanced. You know, it's just a superb wine. It's a great example of its style, mm. if there is such a thing as its style. Um, you know, it holds its own in the company of, I'd say, some of the finest full-bodied red wines in the world. Yeah, it's an incredible blend of power and finesse, isn't it? It sort of makes you catch your breath. I think both of us did that when we were we initially really tasting it. You're sort of, oh well, my you God, want, it's overwhelming. You kind of, I, I, I wanted to like it, but I really wasn't, I thought if we don't, we don't, you know. Yeah, um, but but it, it, stops you, it stops you in a track, yeah, I think that's the best way totally, of saying it. Totally, The tannins, it's kind of almost overwhelming. The tannins are so fine. You know, and silky, but they're also quite rugged. Um, and, and, you know, it has shades of vintage port, doesn't it? There's an, mm. And you can sense it's from a country of, yeah. of vintage port. But it's also crossed with really sort of fine Bordeaux. So it's got that fire in its belly um, the, of the best wines of this region. But it's also got, you know, that, that silkiness and that, that elegance. So, yeah, you could call it the Petrus of Portugal. But really, I think it's a wine very much of its place. You know, a great showcase for the Dodo. And, and you know... I think Luis's job is safe, isn't it? What a great note to end on. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. So we can just go and polish the rest of the bottle off. Isn't good it? plan. Is that, is that good plan. Thinking? I was hoping that you were going to say that. Um, so by way of a brief summary, Portugal tends to fly under the radar for its mm. fine table wines, but that means it offers real intrigue for wine lovers. These are wines brimming with character and attitude and ambition in the best sense, made from unique grape varieties, by forward-thinking winemakers. It does also mean they can be acquired tastes uh, and they might not please everyone, as I think we've fully demonstrated, <laughs> uh, but they are well worth exploring. We didn't argue. We didn't get into a no, full-blown argument, did we? We just agreed to disagree. As um, we always do. Yes, anyway, so uh, I'd like to personally thank Publico for hosting the Vino de Casa event, uh, which led to this podcast. And to all the winemakers for putting up with my incessant questions as well, uh, thanks also to Raymond Reynolds, Liberty Wines and ABS for these delicious wines we've been trying on the show. And sorry for all my epic technical fails on location. Last well, <laughs> Most importantly, 
finally, as ever, thank you for joining us. Mm. Uh, we'll put all the photos, wines and links up from this episode on our website as show notes. Until next time, cheers. Yeah. 